What we're going to say this morning is of a piece with what we said in the sermon. So you want to keep that in mind and keep that little passage of scripture in mind as we talk this morning. But the part of scripture that we'll have reference to about midway through this morning are the various what are called gospel apocalypses. And we'll define that a little bit later. But it's when Jesus just about always just before his actual trial, crucifixion, and death, talks about the end of the world, talks about the fall of Jerusalem, talks about how things are going to end. Those apocalypses are the gospel's version of something that really is not unique either to the gospels or to the Bible, and that is people thinking about what happens at the end. And we want to leave that term, the end, as vague as possible in order to understand why it is so popular, because when people imagine the end, they're not necessarily imagining an end to the world followed by judgment by a single righteous judge, such as we see in the Bible and confess in the creeds. But they are thinking about the end. The way to notice this popularity is to look at both what people consume and also how they talk. What they consume are a variety of more or less obviously horror genre, movies, TV shows, even novels, or maybe we could say more safely in this day of illiteracy, graphic novels, about the end, about some kind of enormous change, some kind of enormous upturning and upending. And what they might imagine would be the takeover of a city by an alien invasion force. Stop me if you've heard this recently from the federal government. Some kind of invasion that would completely change everyday life. And some people are terrified of it, and some people look forward to it but an end, such that once that happens, you never have to go back to the way that things are right now. And you can see that in what they consume. You can see that in the popularity of various predictions about COVID, but much more enduringly about climate change, talking about an end and how everything will change. And not only will certain tree species migrate as the climate warms, but much more convincingly and terrifyingly that entire cities, everything that is familiar, most of the Boston to Washington corridor will somehow be underwater or threatened by sea change, by the rising of sea levels and images of drowning polar bears pop into mind. These are eschatological predictions, that is end times or end things kinds of predictions. One of the funniest things about Christian doctrine when you know enough of it is that you see the framework of it, but not the content everywhere. We have an eschatology and so does the world and they love to consume it. But you also hear it in how people talk, that the end is popular. They joke about things being completely different. They joke about a zombie apocalypse. They joke about lots of things, but what they're saying is that they can imagine or they are thinking, it's on the tip of their tongue to imagine that things would be or could be or should be totally different. 
Now, an end is not quite the same thing as an apocalypse. An apocalypse, whether you're talking about a book or you're talking about an event, is not quite the same thing as an end. An apocalypse, strictly speaking, is a revealing. It's when the curtain is drawn back. That's, that's an apocalypse. It's not even necessarily the end of anything. And if you read the apocalypse of St. John, the revelation to St. John, there is an end predicted in answer to questions such as, the martyrs have how long? How long until our blood is avenged upon the earth? There is an end to these things, an end to unrighteousness. We don't disagree with somebody who's really worried that Manhattan is going to be underwater, that one day things will be completely different. We disagree about the content and the significance because we have a different revelation. We have a true revelation. But John has not promised right now an end to absolutely everything. Right now, in fact, the point of the revelation is to comfort the church. The book isn't meant to be horribly, terribly, unendingly confusing. It's meant to comfort the saints who are suffering and to bring them courage and hope and strength. Because for us, unlike for the world with its various ends that it imagines, the end is not terrifying for us not in the horror genre on your subscription service, the Christian end. But for the world, it always is, partly because they're always stepping into something that is unknown. Think about the way that you get death described in Hamlet as an undiscovered country, a place no one has ever been. So whether you're thinking about your own personal end which is terrifying, for which maybe you would upend the world because of your terror that you could die. So if you are a medical threat to me, you deserve to die because you're trying to kill me. It's unknown and therefore terrifying, but it's unknown and therefore it's also kind of exciting. So people consume this stuff. They kind of like it. They like to talk about it. It's attractive, especially to the young who want something to change, something to be different. I think it would be easier to recruit people to the climate change group Extinction Rebellion than it would be to get them to knock on doors for choose your left-wing politician who's been in power for 45 years because it's exciting, because maybe something will finally change. Apocalypses are not just scary. They're also, even when they have Christ nowhere in them, they're also kind of hopeful. Maybe it could be totally different, and maybe that would be amazing. So people love this stuff. They love to listen to true crime podcasts and imagine their own death. 
And they love to think about what could happen if we just radically changed the way that we live because of whatever, a scatological framework. Climate change is the biggest. It probably will be for a while. It's the framing around the wildfires right now going on in Canada. But it wouldn't have to be. It could be something else. People need some sense that things will change. When Jesus is nearing his own end, his own personal undiscovered country, he speaks about his own end, but he's been doing that. He displays a comfort discussing his own death that our world almost never has. The disciples are uncomfortable with it. You know that, you remember that, the rebukes that Peter issues to the Lord, you remember that they say, far be it from you to do such a thing, to suffer in such a way. The persecution, the suffering, the death, the end is a little bit unimaginable, especially for him. But as he gets closer and closer and closer to that end, he does not only discuss his own end, which he's been predicting and to which he's looking forward so much that Luke, in talking about his determination, says he set his face toward Jerusalem, the city that murders the prophets and slays the righteous. He set his face to go there. He knew perfectly well what he was doing and what his end would be. He talks about his own end, but even more than that, about the end of two things at the same time. And we'll talk about what those two things are and also why he does it at the same time. Some of which is very obviously confusing for his disciples. In fact, in John's gospel, when he's not speaking so much about Jerusalem, but about the end of all things and his role, his disciples will actually say explicitly at one point, ah, now you are not using figures of speech. Now we're actually picking up what you're saying because before now, we've been confused. And people remain confused about these things. It's telling that a lot of speculation about the end, particularly in American Christianity, doesn't use the gospel apocalypses, first of all, when they're thinking about the end. They might use Daniel, first of all, or Revelation, first of all, and then the gospel apocalypses fit in in various ways, but they don't necessarily start there when they're thinking about or talking about the end of the world. It's going to come in second or third or fourth. And it's partly because the two things he's talking about are both of them a little hard to understand. One is the end of Jerusalem as they know it. The end of Jerusalem as they know it. And one is the world's end. Now let's talk first of all about why at the same time, and then maybe it'll be clearer what he means about Jerusalem and the world respectively. Because it's at the same time part that is confusing. For two verses, he'll be talking in a way that is very familiar if you know any of the history of the Old Testament and how things end, particularly for Judah, you'll find the descriptions familiar, including the flight to the mountains. 
Because in a city surrounded by these things, the place to be safe from an invading army would be the place hardest for them to access and easiest for you to know. So you would flee to the mountains or you might flee to one of the wilderness areas. But you're going to go away from the city when the end comes. Because the city is a good place to be killed when the end comes. And along with the city is its pride, the temple. Now on iteration, let's say two and a half, or depending on the Bible scholar you're reading, three. You may know that there are people even today, as I speak to you, trying to rebuild what they call the third temple. But the temple in Jesus's day had changed at least the complex of it. Two different words in Greek for the temple where they actually sacrifice and then all the stuff around it, like we might say, go into the sanctuary, not the parish hall or the offices or the choir room. So all the stuff around it has been so magnificently and completely built up or rebuilt or refurbished by Herod that it is not really the second temple exactly. So you can say two and a half or you can say three, but the folks saying that they're trying to build three today sometime in Jerusalem with enough money and Israeli possession of what is currently a mosque are probably doing at least three and a half, if not four. Just my personal opinion. It's magnificent. But Jesus has prophesied about it already, which has already upset enough people that if it is pulled down, he will rebuild the place where God dwells with his people in three days. Now, John wants to help you understand what matters, so he supplies, there's the quote from Jesus, and then John says he was speaking of the temple of his body, not wanting you to be confused, but the people listening to these predictions of the end of the world are, in fact, confused. What is he talking about, and is this really imaginable? Would this really be destroyed? Because they've survived various points and periods of tension between Judea and Rome before Jesus was even an adult. Some of those rebellions you get mentioned when Gamaliel says, well, just let these apostles, he doesn't call them apostles, but let the apostles go because it's probably going to fail just like these other two guys did who rebelled. And if it doesn't, then woe to you. But things have happened into and around Judea before, and the temple has remained standing and has even gotten more beautiful in the living memory of the people listening to this. So this is a little strange, but it's always true about apocalypses that we're ready for certain kinds of ends and other ends we're just not prepared for. We would say in our kind of therapy-speak dominated culture, I'm not emotionally ready for that. Now, some things I'm emotionally ready for. I'm ready for people I despise to get their comeuppance. I'm not ready for things that I hold dear also to end at the same time. But he says, this is going away. And woe to the one who's bringing new life into the world or has just brought new life into the world, those with child or nursing mothers in that day, because that's a day of death. 
not a day of life. That's a day of ends, not a day of beginnings for Jerusalem. But he also speaks of the world's end and of his own coming at that time. And that goes with the parables that he's telling there in the last week of his ministry, his earthly ministry, about what happens when the master comes again to his vineyard. And how people will have to, at that time, as the Bible says everywhere, and as we just recited in the Athanasian Creed, essentially paraphrasing John 5, you will give account. Accounts will be settled. Things will not go on topsy-turvy and unresolved forever. The master will come again to his vineyard. In descriptions of the end in these apocalypses, what is revealed is specifically in that day, that last day, capital L, capital D, what has always been true and has always been proclaimed in the church, and that is that Christ is king. The only thing that's happening when we proclaim the gospel is that we are calling people to acknowledge his reign before it is too late. That's why you hear when Paul speaks about these things in terms of his own ministry, what am I doing? What am I here for? What is this all for and about? In 2 Corinthians 5, he has such urgency in his voice. If you could guarantee that you could keep the master away from his vineyard until a time of your choosing, or if you could guarantee that he would cede some of his kingly rights over the heavens and the earth until a time when you said, okay, you can, you can have the whole thing. If you could somehow delay his kingship, including his royal choice, to return whenever he should choose. And it will be for the wicked like a thief in the night. So that for them, the end is not predictable like UN climate goals. That if we just do this, you can avert doom. Because for the wicked, it will be a time, no doubt, of terror because they did not acknowledge him as Lord. And now the time to acknowledge that has come. They will acknowledge it in regret rather than in joy. Because for his subjects, the king's return to his own land is a time of joy beyond imagining. There is no better time. For all of us, it will be necessarily an apocalypse. Necessarily. A revealing of things that we had hoped for and the world had despised. A revealing of truth that we had long acknowledged and confessed concerning his kingship and that the world had trampled underfoot. It will be a time of revelation. Before it, we will be prepared. And that's his intention, both in telling his disciples then and us now through his spirit, 
who speaks in these scriptures so that we would be ready. So that we would not lose heart. Which is easy to do when you don't think it's going to end. When you think that you're just going to fight and fight and fight and fight and then fight some more. <laughs> so we like apocalypses too. And we don't need to be upset that the world, which does not know Christ, is substituting its own apocalypses for his. We should not be surprised that a world that does not acknowledge his kingship is substituting a different understanding of end times for the one that he teaches. And we should not be surprised that a world full of people made to acknowledge their Redeemer are looking for other Redeemers, other directives, other people who will tell them with certainty that the end is coming, that life is meaningful, that it's not just weightless and pointless and stupid, because ends give weight to things. Think about the end of life. It's at the end of someone's life that usually we, in our inborn foolishness, finally figure out how much that person meant and what the full weight of his life was in our lives. It's really hard for us to see that and certainly to see it fully before the end. So how do we look forward to ends? Let's take this in terms of Jerusalem first and then the world's end. And then we'll talk about not ends, but the present. And we're taking it in that order because I think it's actually least confusing and most invigorating in that order. You'll notice that after his resurrection, the thing that upsets the people in Jerusalem most about the gospel is the sense that their place with which they cannot do, without which they cannot do, is somehow being insulted by the preaching of the gospel. You hear it in the accusations against Stephen. You also hear it in the suspicions and then the accusations later on against Paul when he's in Jerusalem in sort of the, the third quarter of the book that they're speaking against Moses and against the law, that they're somehow relativizing or denigrating or seeking to pull down or, or make small the things that make their lives meaningful. Moses and the law and the temple and what Jesus calls with some piety of his own in Matthew's gospel, the city of the great king. The idea that the things that they find familiar and important, that had some sanction in the scriptures, but which have now been fulfilled in Christ, the sense that those things are threatened is what most enrages them. 
You hear it too in the pagans in Ephesus who are outraged that the things that are being proclaimed by the Christians, by these followers of the way, would somehow overturn what is familiar to them and what centers their city. And in their specific case, with the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians, what makes their city originally and finally significant. Why do we matter? What should we center our life around, much less how are we going to get paid? So the craftsmen worry. When people are worried about ends in this life, it's not always for a petty reason. It's not just a paycheck. Feelings and senses and confidence that we would call religious are always wrapped up in endings. That's why people do awful things to themselves sometimes when they get fired. And it's why people lose all motivation in life when their marriage ends. It might seem like nothing to you, but it's what they centered their life around. And now it's gone, or now it's over, and they don't know what else to do. And you can hear the terror and the worry and the rage in their voices, whether it's in Ephesus or Jerusalem. The sense we want to give people, therefore, as we proclaim the gospel, that is the whole counsel of God, it's what our confessions would call the wide sense of the gospel, both the preaching of repentance and the preaching of the forgiveness of sins. When we proclaim the gospel is to give people a sense that those things do come to an end. So they are not ultimately significant. What you will find in the terror that inhabits our culture, much less the interest in true crime or zombie apocalypses, is a search for meaning. They want life to mean something. Death gives life meaning and weight. So if they are trying to consume stuff about death or whether they are pondering death or something horrible but not quite so bad when something in their life ends, it's because they were attaching significance to that thing that ended like unto a God. So if they do no longer say, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, they might say, great is my career, or great is my marriage, or great is my sense of my free time that having children took away from me, or whatever their form of, and we call it this quite clearly, idolatry is. When their idols end, they contemplate death. So we find the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 to be a very familiar person. He thinks he's going to lose everything he's worked for. So he begins to make his own end. And Paul stops him with the comfort that that's not all at an end. We are all still here. But that this is now the end of his idolatry. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The end of Jerusalem might have been unimaginable, perhaps even 
for the disciples listening to Jesus. It would, in fact, be overturned the city twice in roughly the next century, both in 70 and in 135 AD, Jerusalem would be so thoroughly sacked that after 135, the Romans said, we are simply done dealing with this political problem and forbade the Jews from living in and around their city, their capital. It came to an end. What had meant everything, it not only didn't mean much anymore, it didn't exist anymore. If that's what it takes for repentance to occur, God will do it over and again to the proud, that he might bring to nothing the things that are. The end. The world's end is always harder for people to understand, but Jesus teaches you these things at the same time so that you may understand already how things may come to an end in your own life before it is too late to repent. There's always an element of time and of its urgency and preciousness in Jesus's preaching about the end of the world. Whether we're talking about Jerusalem, familiar things, or undiscovered countries, it's time that we end up taking so much for granted that people just think they have oodles and oodles and oodles of, and it's really the only thing that later on when they are near their own end, assuming that they have a, a life of an average biblical span, 70 or 80, right? Even by reason of strength, 80, that they begin to realize how much the time actually cost, how extremely valuable it was and is, and how really pointless and, and cheap and tawdry were so many of the things that they obsessed over. To put it in biblical terms and in Jerusalem terms, how little the earthly Jerusalem meant and how much the heavenly Jerusalem meant. It's a poor sense of value that we're just absolutely plagued with. So the reason Jesus gives you familiar things with unfamiliar things and conflates them is so that you can see and the world can see that what is revealed already is what actually matters. That Jesus not only has gone to the undiscovered country and come back so that even death for us should not be undiscovered but comforting, not terrible, but that we should fall asleep, very gently in the Father's care, but that what was terrifying or unfamiliar becomes in him, and because of him, utterly familiar. Death, its terrors, the sense that everything is gone, that all time is past, and instead he very calmly measures the time and counts the time and says that he will come again. After three days, he will appear again. And at that time, it's important to remember what the disciples on the road to Emmaus, how they rebuke him. 
Because when people think of the word apocalypse, isn't it telling that they usually don't think of the revelation of the blessed Savior from heaven with all his angels? Instead, when they think apocalypse, they think poison gas and alien invasions and biological warfare or having to stock up on your weaponry so that you can face the teeming masses or whatever apocalypse you imagine, you, probably even you Christians, don't think immediately when you hear the word apocalypse of the revelation of the Savior. But things are already being opened up there on Easter evening. But remember how the disciples on the road to Emmaus rebuke him. And they have such a lively sense of how everything has gone wrong and such disappointment in their voices. We had hoped that this great prophet would, you know, do more. I'm not talking to an audience of people who don't believe any of the things in the Bible. So as we come to an end and we have a little bit of time for discussion, we want to think about the Emmaus disciples. Because it wasn't so much that they probably hadn't heard any of these things. They had, in fact, heard a prediction of the resurrection and a proclamation of the resurrection. The women had come to the disciples and they had heard that report that these women said that we saw him alive, but it was sort of, who knows what that even meant. So that even when the things come true that he has foretold, we remain somewhat incredulous. Matthew says it this way in the encounter in the Galilee afterward, they worshiped him but some doubt it. Our temptation is not so much that we are not aware of what the end should be or will be. That he comes like a thief in the night, that he comes suddenly, that he comes in great glory on clouds, like the reigning king of the Old Testament, which indeed he is, to announce publicly into all the world at the same time what has always been true, that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, that he is indeed king and Lord, and everything else you could imagine. It's not that we don't know that. It's that our minds are usually too small to perceive it. So what he does to them is that he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. So that we should come to find the scriptures, whatever the days ahead have for us, whether Jerusalem falls or Washington Falls, or any other thing that we cannot really imagine happening actually comes to pass, or even if he comes back, that we realize that he has given us everything that we need for the journey ahead. Everything that we need for life in the vineyard until he comes back through the gates and everyone acknowledges that the master is home come again into his own country, his own dwelling, bought land, bought with his blood. Because we are prone to grow faint-hearted. 
And some of us are prone to take the talents that we have been given and in a kind of pious sloth, say to ourselves that we don't really know when he's coming back, but we know that things are not going well. So we might as well just put the coins under the floorboards so that we don't lose anything. Woe to us. May we not be found so lazy and unbelieving when he comes. Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord in the vineyard now with slackness. Like there's nothing to be done. And like it doesn't mean anything. He's already told us that he will give our ends beautiful significance. Beyond deserving, but significance nonetheless. This life is not weightless and pointless. We're not just waiting in church for him to come again. We are living lives suffused by his spirit and in his power and acknowledging his lordship in all things. That entails suffering. That entails difficulty. That entails persecution. That entails a hundredfold more than anything we have ever given up. So imagine the end. Think about everything that could fall down. And I guarantee you, it's more than I or you can imagine. Jerusalem and Samaria, which was a bigger city in the Northern Kingdom, and anything else that anyone ever thought mattered that came to an end and Sodom and Gomorrah, and it all just went away sooner or later, it can come to an end. And remember that in that time, the call is always to repent, lest you likewise perish. But remember, too, this about the end, that the king is coming and is even very near to the gates, very close. And that when he comes again, you are not afraid, terrified, worried with the world. You are busy now announcing that end to the world so that some might by all means hear and believe that message so that they with you would look forward to it and be happy it's coming. And be certain that the glory to then be revealed will be far beyond what you can imagine. So that Paul can even speak about the whole creation groaning in anticipation of that time. Waiting for things we have not seen the like of maybe forever. That's glorious. That's the end that we're looking for. That's our apocalypse. An apocalypse of hope. And that is the hope that we have, and that is the faith that we proclaim. Let's take a little bit of time for questions and for comments. We have maybe five or 10 minutes. Yes, sir. All right. You referenced the parable of the talents several times during your talk. Yeah. Uh, I do want to know your thoughts about that with regards to uh, the steward who did not do anything with the talents. Right. Yeah. And what this means for us, because obviously when the master comes, that for him is a not a day of, well, it, uh, 
you're you're just not going to be glorified as much as your your fellows over here. It's in fact the day when his glory is taken away. Yeah, like it's punished. It's judgment for him. Right. Uh, and uh, so I just want to hear your thoughts about that. Sort especially with regards to what you were mentioning, sort of the, the active, outgoing, pushing ahead Christianity versus the Christianity that stands under God's judgment because it does nothing. Yeah, so the the guy who does nothing, it's always important to remember the convictions that he has, which he announces very cavalierly to the master. Like, I knew that you don't, I mean, it's basically you're a horrible boss. You don't know how to do my job and you wouldn't appreciate it if I did do my job. So I just figured I wouldn't do much, <laughs> right? Is that he has an evil, false conviction concerning his Lord because everyone else is surprised at his graciousness. And the conviction that, uh, you know, he's evil and harsh is not true concerning his kingdom but he is certainly harsh and swift in his punishment. You know, the Psalms talk about with the, with the crooked, you show yourself crooked. So it's not that activity is everything, but activity is always nourished by conviction. And when the conviction is evil or false, then the activity will be evil or false, or in this case, it won't be at all, right? But it's born out of that conviction, right? The the life is born out of the faith, um, and he has a false faith, right? Or he has an idol, a misconception of the true God, of the master. Other, other things, other questions, other comments? Anybody? Yep, back here. Go ahead. Yep. Yep. So if you were talking about how there's the leftist desire for wanting things to change, yeah. I find, you know, with a lot of young guys like myself, more on the right side of things, wanting the current state of liberalism just to like not exist anymore <laughs> frankly so is it wrong for like young christian men to desire just getting rid of the current order status quo is that like a biblical concept or is that idolatrous you know to not want the way things are stay you know yeah so what about the world being turned upside down maybe wouldn't that be in pride month wouldn't that be good right so uh, let me start anecdotally and then, and then answer it biblically, but just to sort of echo what you said is that anecdotally, um, the young men, one of whom is coming in in like half an hour, who just started coming a couple weeks ago, um, young men particularly, partly because this, this present state of affairs has so little to offer them. Um, if you wanna go in the military and be a macho man, uh, you will have to salute the pride flag this month as part of your service at this point. So there's so little on offer that they're discontent with the way that the world is. And this goes for lots of other demographics that our churches, certainly this congregation, um, has a lot of interaction with these days. Uh, people for whom this present state of affairs is offering absolutely nothing. So if somebody said, it's getting overturned, like Jesus talks about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, they'd say, great, <laughs> right? When can we do that, right? Um, are you available next Tuesday, right? Um, so that goes along with a spiritual hunger 
that they are seeking out churches to satisfy even when they themselves don't know what they're looking for. So they don't necessarily say, I'm here because of the Lutheran teaching of the doctrine of election, right? They'll find that out, but they're here because this looks civilizationally stable. So that is, that is anecdotal. Biblically, desiring righteousness to be done is always in order. That's a little bit different from saying, do we want everything to be upended, right? Um, because if we want everything to be upended, if we recognize that's, that's the corner I've been backed into politically, uh, historically, fine, right? If you are, uh, this is something that if you're interested in the topic of Jerusalem, you might look at Eusebius's history of the church because he's got a very interesting discussion of not just what happens in 70, but what happens in that second war, 132 to 135, and how it affects the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem, which is governed for several generations of bishops by people who are related to our Lord, right? Obviously beginning with James, but then that, that family is kind of in charge there for a while, that all of that gets overturned at the point where they're backed into the corner, well, you're ethnically Jewish, so do you agree that we need to kick the Romans out? No, because I'm a Christian. And the Romans say, you're ethnically Jewish, you must agree with these people. So it just obliterates the Jewish Christian church there. And what replaces it is Gentile, ethnically speaking. So some, we don't have a choice over that. If we're trying to foment that time of extremity, we need to realize that we are bringing in things that we ourselves don't understand and don't actually have control over. That's something you notice in any revolutionary or situation of zealotry is that it always gets out of the hands of the one who began it. And that it usually ends up wreaking greater havoc than he understood or planned for. But the desire that righteousness should be done is a is a pious desire. That's, that's not wrong, right? And if you want to seek redress of those things by the various means uh, that we have available to us, all the better. Yep. Anybody else? Yeah. That's quite cool. Uh, I've been hearing from a lot of other pastors about the general lassitude in the congregations. Uh, there's a I, yeah, there's kind of a despair over the fact that um, folks are, are not coming around as often anymore. Uh, the things that they used to get excited about with regard to, you know, Lutheran teaching and doctrine, long gospel, uh, it's, it's harder for people to keep their interest there. And it's not just from a, hand, a couple of guys that I've heard this from. I've heard this from many, many guys who are doing a lot of soul searching right now, asking themselves what, what can we do different? What's going on? Is this something that's, that's cultural? Is this something that's coming out like of the, the general state of preaching right now? Uh, so well, I, I don't know. I, I want to hear your thoughts about that and how, uh, especially since, you know, our, the goal is, again, this, this active Christianity where our convictions are born out in life. So um, speaking for sort of my own group of the church, the clergy, and speaking of my own church, the Lutheran church, 
it's incumbent on us not only to answer questions about justification, but questions that people are posing in a biblical fashion. Even if we're uncomfortable with the topic or we've never thought about it. And if we're not going to do that, then we, we don't have a right to maintain their attention. So our members, for example, would not get denied promotion at work because they confess the doctrine of justification by faith, even though they do. They would get denied promotion because they're conservative or white or whatever. So we have to have a way of discussing these things and answering the questions and the difficulties that the people of God actually have, right? Um, now, some of them are gonna have questions. So we have uh, our zealous young guys also are interested often in Eastern Orthodoxy. Now that's not really a thing. Lutheran pastors have been great at, at hammering on Roman Catholics for a long time because it's it just comes naturally, right? What's wrong with the Roman Catholics? Well, we need to have answers as to what's wrong with Eastern Orthodox too. So I have to talk about the doctrine of original sin maybe more than I did before because they've got problems that far upstream, let alone in the doctrine of salvation. But if we're not going to answer biblically the questions that God's people actually have, then I don't think we deserve their attention. Yeah, go ahead. What then questions do you think that they're most typically asking that we're not answering? Um, it really depends on the demographic because our people are very divided up by their life experience. Um, so older folks want to know how they can help their grandkids uh, be raised in the faith because there's a broken link there and they know it and they feel regret about it maybe. Um, or, uh, you know, it, maybe it's, the, it's this promotion situation that I mentioned. I mean, it varies very widely by demographic. It usually has to do, if I can just be holistic, maybe recklessly, it usually has to do with the doctrine of creation and the orders of creation. And so how things are supposed to function in a family or in a state or something like that. It's not, it's not usually about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit necessarily. Um, and a lot of our apologetics, certainly Lutherans relative to other Christians in America, is keyed to our differences over the second article and the third article from other Christians, whereas the major threat, especially to our younger folks, but certainly reverberating in the lives of all of our people, usually has to do with the first article. How we're made, how we're made to be, is it good, is it bad, what's required, what's not required. So just like we need to have answers if they ask about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we need to have answers if they ask about orders of creation. But if I had to say it broadly, that's the way I'd say it. Yep. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. 
At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.